Welcome back to Restless. My name is Father Joseph Gill, the priest of the Diocese of Bridgeport, Connecticut. I'm sorry, not the priest, a priest of the Diocese of Bridgeport. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta you get just my, made uh, yourself the bishop, Father Joseph. <laughs> my indefinite, oh boy, the bishop would not be pleased with that. <laughs> 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 get my indefinite articles right. <laughs> so you've joined us on Restless, where we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. And of course, one of the ways in which our world is crazy and mixed up is understanding the human body and what it means, what it means to be an embodied spirit, to be a human being. And so we have an incredibly special guest with us today on this episode of Restless, and it is Christopher West. Many of you will recognize that name. He is perhaps the most uh, foremost uh, American speaker on the good news of the theology of the body. He wrote a number of books, uh, what many of which I've read. I know um, I've read Good News About Sex and Marriage, one of the best books I've ever read about theology of the body. And so Christopher's here to kind of talk a little bit about theology of the body and what it means for us in today's world, and also to talk about the fact that he's coming to Connecticut for a very special event on March 27th, and we're very excited about that. Tell us a little bit about what that event is going to be all about. Yeah, Father, the, the event we're doing in, on March 27th is called Made for More, and then the subtitle is Visions of the Promised Land. If we are honest with ourselves, if we're, if we're taking a courageous look at the deepest yearnings of our hearts, then we know we are made for more than what this world is holding out to us. And through a, a two and a half hour journey, which is much more like a, a night out at the theater than it is a theology lecture, uh, you're going to, at the Made for More event, you're going to enter into those deeper longings, and we're going to present to you how the theology of the body from St. John Paul II is the answer to the crisis of our times. It's like a map that shows us the road to the promised land, the fulfillment of the deepest longings of our hearts. And, you know, if you look around at the world today, you were talking about the chaotic situation we're in. Have you noticed there is a, there is a dramatic battle going on, an attack against our creation as male and female? Well, for such a time as this, have we been given St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, and it's an honor for me to be able to spread this message, and I, I really believe I got the best job in the world. I just get to tell hungry people where to find good food. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I really believe, we, we talked about when I was in college at Franciscan, our professors always say, you know, ideas have consequences, and, and the reality is when we see the chaos, it really has a philosophical basis uh, for the chaos, which is why the theology of the body is not just a list of rules, but really uh, a, a philosophical understanding of, of the human person in a profound way. Yeah, well, let's look and at the very phrase, theology of the body. Well, what the heck does that mean? It means our bodies are not only biological, they are that, but they're also theological. They, they tell a divine story. But the problem in the modern world is we have reduced the body to something merely biological. And, and when we do that, I, I like to point out this, this phrase of Christ, they look, but they do not see, right? When we reduce this, the body to something merely biological, we'll look at the human body, but we won't see the divine story that it tells. And here's an example. Um, I'm kind of a music guy. I, I came of age in the 70s and 80s, so that's kind of my music catalog. But Father, you'll probably remember this song uh, from Peter Gabriel. It went like this. In your eyes, the light, the heat. In your eyes, I am complete. But then check out this next line. In your eyes, I see the doorway to a thousand churches. 
Holy Moses, that's a man. That's yeah, that's a man who's seeing this woman's body theologically, right? So but if we reduce that... Yeah, it's not in your eyes. I see uh, the cornea or the retina or a, a thousand blood vessels. Exactly. That would be just the biology, right? And, and thank God for optometrists. You know, they, they, they help us understand our eyes at that level. That's, that's awesome. But every woman knows there's a big difference between the way your optometrist looks in your eyes and the way your lover looks in your eyes. Unless, of course, I often joke... Uh, unless you happen to be in love with your optometrist, then maybe you get a little bit of both. Um, <laughs> but, right. Or he's in love with you. Uh, yeah, but the point is, there's another way to see the human body than mere biology. And the modern world has lost sight of this vision. The invitation of Christ is come and become one who sees. He wants to open our eyes not just to the theology of our bodies, but he wants to open our eyes to a sacramental way of seeing the entire physical world. He wants, to, he wants to help us see a tree in a different way, a mountain in a different way, a flower in a different way. He wants to help us see the whole world as a sign that reveals his eternal plan. And when our eyes get open to this, everything changes. And what's so interesting, though, is that in our modern world, you know, our modern world reduces everything only to the material, which means that we have these desires for, for transcendence, these desires for love, for communion. And yet, because all we're ever taught is that the only thing that exists is the material world, then we, we can't see beyond it, even though we have the exactly. desires and the burning longing for love. Exactly. C.S. Lewis says, if you find in your heart desires that nothing in this world can satisfy then it only makes sense that you're made for another world, right? And, and if That's you let true. that look sink in, it, it is, isn't that? It resonates. Um, or maybe maybe you think this, does, this world does have what you desire. Well, I, I would say you've fallen for what I call the fast food gospel. And mm. by that I mean the secular culture's promise of immediate gratification for the hunger. Uh, right. I've been down that road. Um, it's it's very convincing because, I mean, let's be honest. The chicken nuggets taste pretty good going down, especially <laughs> when you're you're really hungry. Enough salt and fat. Yeah, that's salt and fat. Actually, it leads to a multitude of sins as well. <laughs> yes, that's true too. <laughs> um, you know, if you think Christianity is a starvation diet. Well, then the fast food becomes very attractive because that's better than starving to death. But I learned from St. John Paul II, and, and this takes me back to the early 1990s. I was in my 20s when I first read Theology of the Body. I had done the starvation approach. I had done the fast food approach. And when I discovered this Theology of the Body, I, I realized Christianity is an invitation to a wedding feast. It's not a starvation mm. diet. It's an invitation to a banquet that truly corresponds to the deepest hungers and desires of our hearts. That is good news. So, so what led you to pick up the theology of the body in the first place? Where did you encounter this for the first time? Yeah, well, what led me, I was on a journey looking for answers to deep and painful questions. You know, if, if fast food becomes your steady diet, 
as I said, yeah, it tastes good going down, but eventually that grease and sodium is going to catch up with you, and you're going to be in a lot of pain. And mm. that's a picture of me in my, my college years in the late 1980s, and it, it put me on my knees in a college dorm in 1988, and uh, this ragged prayer came out of my heart. It was basically, God, if you exist, you better show me why you gave me all these desires, because they're getting me and everybody I know into a hell of a lot of trouble. What, <laughs> what is your plan? Do you have a plan? And that started me on a journey. And I took up a study, a real intense study of the scriptures. And around 1989, 1990, I started studying the Bible very intently. And I was mm. studying it with the intention of trying to understand why God made us male and female. And over the course of about three years, I came to see what I would now call this grand spousal vision of the Bible, that the Bible begins with the marriage in an earthly paradise. Throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of his love for his people as the love of a husband for his bride. And the love of that eternal bridegroom was literally made flesh in the New Testament. Skip to the end of the story, and the book of Revelation describes heaven as a marriage in an eternal paradise. Yeah. But this is the marriage of, of God and humanity, Christ and the church, right? Yeah, human marriage is a foreshadowing then of exactly. what he's going to do in a spiritual sense. Exactly. The, the human marriage that starts the Bible is the sign or foreshadowing of the divine and human marriage that ends the Bible. And when you realize this, now you have the key that unlocks the whole story. The whole story, the whole biblical story is summarized in these five words. God wants to marry us. Yeah, amen. And that's, awesome. and that's why I've, I've always taken uh, the, the celibacy as a great gift as a priest. In exactly. that I get, I get to live out the marriage between God and the soul here on earth. In a, in a very you are a married man. You're a married man in a different way. You are married to the church. You are in persona Christi, which means you're a bridegroom, just like Christ was a bridegroom. And the church is your bride. And in your union with the church, we rightly call you father because you bear numerous spiritual children, right? This is the blueprint of our humanity as male and female. Uh, and, and there's no escaping that. And because it's the blueprint, this is why the enemy's after it. The enemy is after the blueprint of our humanity because the blueprint of our humanity, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he called them to be fruitful and multiply. That's the blueprint. Why is he after it? Precisely because it's the sign that reveals the theological mystery that God wants to marry us, and even more... Right? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. Right, exactly. What we didn't realize in second grade when we learned that is we were actually reciting some profound theology. Right? God loves us, he wants to marry us, and he wants the bride to conceive eternal life. Right? This is not just a metaphor. There was right, a yeah. woman who walked this planet who literally conceived eternal life in her womb because she said yes to the marriage proposal. 
This is our right. faith, and it's called theology of the body. It's so true that fruitfulness aspect is such an important one. We see all throughout Scripture how how God, like for example in Isaiah, He talks about Israel being a vine, and He goes to the vineyard and finds nothing but wild grapes. He doesn't find the fruit fruit that He's looking for. And so, and even in the New Testament, there's that great story of Jesus cursing the fig tree that's not bearing fruit, and that's a symbol of Israel's unfruitfulness, the un, the lack of holiness, the lack of conversions that God has expected for that that marriage between God and Israel. And so in the same way, I think the parallels there in the human aspect, right? And over the last 60, 70 years exactly. since the birth control pill, we have lost that fruitfulness aspect of that's what the marital love is really supposed to reach its full flowering in. Every time God establishes a covenant with his people, there is a call to be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because that fertile gift is the main sign of God's eternal life-giving love in the world, right? God reveals himself as Father because he is eternally generating the Son to share with the Son the love of the Holy Spirit. And it's in this image, with the ability to generate sons and daughters, that God made us male and female. That ability to generate is a revelation of the life-giving love of God. And obviously we need to be sensitive here because there are a lot of married people who would love to have children and are un unable to. But what we're talking about, what you're saying, Father, is the willful rendering of the sexual act sterile. That's where we get ourselves in trouble. That's where we, we're, we're directly attacking the deepest meaning of our gender. Right. I mean, look at the word, the word gender... If you go to its root, look at the root, it's gen. We see that same root in words like generous, generate, progeny, genealogy, genitals, right? What does gen mean? It means to produce or give birth to. Before the modern world ruptured gender from the body, everyone understood that your gender referred to the manner in which you generate new life, right? The That's modern attack. Yeah, think about that. The modern attack on gender began with contraception. That's true. When you are wearing condom-colored glasses, the ultimate, the uh, the eventually the meaning of gender will will evaporate, and that's the world we live in right now. Well, what's always struck me with that that fruitful aspect is that uh, you, uh, as a married person, a couple, has the ability to do something that only God can do. You know, to create life. Awesome? I mean, to create life. I mean, I can I can take you know two pieces of wood and build a you know a shelf or something and, and create something that's not me, but not something that that has an immortal soul that has an eternal destiny. That is something that's that's really mind boggling. I mean, I'm, are you married with kids? Yes, Wendy and I have been married for going on twenty eight years, and we have five beautiful children. Uh, so that's that's got to be an incredible experience. The, it is. It's the greatest joy and the greatest challenge of my life. Right. And, and the, right. the agony and the ecstasy go together. That's part of the Christian mystery. That's part of the whole mystery of human sexuality because, as St. Paul tells us, the union of man and woman in one flesh refers to Christ and the church. Right. Well, where, where, do we, where does the church become one flesh with Christ? What On do you say in the words of consecration, Father? When you're right. standing at the altar, what are the words of consecration? This is my 
My body given up for you. My body right, which, given up for you. Which, what so Christ you're did entering in, on the cross. Yes, you're entering into the same mystery. The, uh, the, 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 the Eucharist, in fact, is the culmination of the mystery of marriage. John Paul II describes the Eucharist as the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. Right? Mm. This is our faith. The Eucharist is the consummation of a marriage. It's the marriage of Christ and the church. Well, That's in the, the in marriage we Yeah, in the Eucharist, we have, we have his body entering our body and bearing fruit in, in souls, much like exactly. in the sexual act, one body entering another body and, and giving oneself completely for the fruitfulness. And can wow. you imagine? Can you imagine going up to receive the Eucharist, uh, and 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 receiving the host because it tastes good, but then you spit it out because you don't want the new life? I mean, that <laughs> should horrify us. Amen. Right? But something, something very similar is happening when people go through the motions of the marital act, but they spit out the fertility, right? Hmm. Let's do That's this because it feels good, but we don't want the, the life-giving aspect. That's If you're horrified at the thought of spitting out the Eucharist, you should be just as horrified at rendering the sexual act sterile. This is a sacred, holy, beautiful mystery, and this is exactly why the enemy is attacking it so violently in this world. He wants to keep us from knowing who we are. And the purpose of this event that we're going to be doing in Connecticut on March 27th is to open our eyes to who we really are, that we are made for more than what the world is telling us. Amen. Amen. But let's go back to something that you said that I think is, is kind of a, an obstacle to a lot of people embracing this truth, and that is the cross, right? That, that yes. in order to find yes. this true self-gift, we have to embrace the cross. And I think that's why people choose... The, the fast food, because it's cheap, it's easy, it doesn't cost you That's anything right. to buy a McDonald's hamburger, it costs you a great deal to go to a wedding feast and put on a nice banquet. Hey, that's I love the way you just developed my own analogy. Well, it's not my own analogy, but the, <laughs> the analogy I, I use so often, I mean, it comes right out of the scripture, but you're exactly right. It is costly. Learning how to love as Jesus loves is costly, and we're always looking for a way around that. Remember, what did Jesus say to Peter when Peter said, hey, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Right, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> get yeah, behind me, thinking Satan. Thinking as men do, not as God. Whenever you have a path to real happiness held out to you apart from the cross, it's not real happiness. Mm. Right. It's not. The, on the, the only way to happiness is to learn how to love as Jesus loves. That's the new commandment that summarizes everything. Love one another as I have loved you. And that involves the cross. And there's so many counterfeits to that, to that authentic love. You know, I think about uh, the young people I work with uh, here in Stanford and Monroe uh, who are very addicted to social media because that, they believe that their love, the love that they crave, comes from getting enough likes on Instagram. You know, it's just, it's counterfeit. It's, it's fake sugar. It's not even yeah. real thing. yeah. And there I, I would say we've confused our desires. What we really desire is to be known well. But what social media turns that into is being well-known, right? There's hmm. a big difference between being known well and being well-known. 
right? Yes, Don't it's true. confuse the two. We want to be well known, right? And then look at that word, to know. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. And how does mm. Jesus describe eternal life with the very same word? He says, this is eternal life, that you would know the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son, that you would I've know. Always, yeah, I've always, I've always loved that, that word and the richness of it, because I, especially in the Annunciation, you know, when Mary says, how can this be? Because I have not known man. It's, it's more I than an intellectual man, right? knowledge. We've reduced it to yeah, intellectual. And, and, while in reality, it's experiential. It's, it's encounter. And I hear the words of the prophet Hosea resounding when Mary says, I have not known man. It's as if the, the angel Gabriel says to Mary exactly what the prophet Hosea said. You will know the Lord. The Lord will betroth you to him forever and you will know the Lord. What happened at the Annunciation was, the, was a mystical marriage between Mary and God. And she conceived virginally, she conceived God's son by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our faith. This, our faith, you, John Paul II says, you cannot understand what Christianity is unless you understand why God made us male and female and called the two to become one flesh. Because this is the paradigm, this is the blueprint on which our faith is based. Our faith is, is a marriage. It's, it's the marriage of Christ and the church. And, and God the wanted that eternal, this, all the sacraments are marital. They're, they're, they're essentially jump. right. They're using our body to encounter love in a tangible way. Exactly. The catechism says this. This is, you can look it up. It's catechism 1617. And the catechism says the entire Christian life, not just a footnote, not just one aspect, the entire Christian life is marked by the spousal love of Christ for the church. And then it says baptism, the entry of, 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 of our entry into the people of God is itself a nuptial mystery, a nuptial mystery. What happens in baptism? We are born anew from the marriage of Christ and the church. We're born mm -hmm. anew. This is what Nicodemus couldn't understand. Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't get this? Right? We have to, and then he says, you have to understand the earthly reality in order to understand the heavenly reality. The yeah. earthly reality we have to understand is marriage. When we understand the earthly reality, then we'll understand the heavenly reality. And that's why the enemy is attacking the earthly reality so violently so that we'll no longer understand the heavenly reality. Amen. There's there's such a there's a beautiful moment in the the Easter vigil liturgy that that ties in so perfectly with this where you take the paschal candle and dip it three times into the baptismal water. And I've always thought that's, that's a beautiful right. symbol because it really is, you know, not to be graphic about it, but you know it, it's essentially a a sexual symbol of saying that, you know, Christ being symbolized by the pillar is impregnating the water with the ability to give new life. And the, the, the baptismal font has always been understood as the womb of the church. Yes. This, this is our faith. This is our faith. And when we realize this, and you're not wrong, Father. I mean, you know, we have to be delicate in the way we unfold these things. I've learned the hard way that, 
you know, the church's liturgical symbols can be a lot more scandalous than a lot of people would like them to be when we really <laughs> understand them. So we, we have to be delicate in the way we unpack these mysteries. But you're absolutely right. The Paschal candle plunged into the baptismal font is a sacred symbol of the nuptial union of Christ and the church, which is virginal, but it's not, it's virginal, but it's not asexual, right? Christ the bridegroom is a man and the church is a bride, right? Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Our, our, our maleness and femaleness is critical here. It is critical that there is a man on the cross and a woman at the foot of the cross. New Adam, new Eve, right? Mm. We have a virginal union going on, a union of hearts. And how do we know it's fertile? Well, what does the new Adam say to the new Eve from the cross? He says, woman, behold your son. The beloved disciple John is the mystical offspring of the mystical marriage of Christ and the church. That's, That's so what happens in baptism. We become beloved disciples. We get regenerated. And we see very much there on the cross then the, uh, the kind of setting right everything that Adam did wrong as Adam was next to a tree. And instead of taking, taking the potential death of defending his bride, here he is going passive. And it's his passivity that allowed his bride to be led astray. But it's Christ's uh, activity, right, in, in embracing the cross, embracing the death for us that then gave life, that then was willing to, uh, you know, to protect his bride, Mary, who also stands in for the church. Wow. You're exactly is, right, Father Gill. <laughs> this is and, just so but let's rich. press into that for a minute. Let's press into that for a minute. Why did the woman need to be protect, protected? Why is the serpent after the woman? Why has he always been after the woman? He's after the woman, John Paul II tells us, because woman is the model and the archetype of the whole human race. In what way? To be human means to open, to receive, and conceive divine love and bear it forth. That's what it means to be human. And that's the theology of a woman's body. Mm. The enemy, right from the start, wants to block that conception. His enmity... His hatred is aimed at woman and her ability to bear offspring. Which is why you woman was the, created last, as the, as the pinnacle, because the she, apex. She's the crown. She's the crown of the whole of creation. Exactly. Exactly. It is absolute bedrock biblical teaching that God comes to us through woman's fertility. This is how mm. Christ takes flesh, <clears throat> in the womb of of woman. And this is why the enemy hates woman's ability to bear offspring. What, what does the dragon want to do in the book of Revelation before the pregnant woman? Oh, well, of course, he wants to devour the, the child and ultimately destroy her. He wants her. to devour the child, right? If you want to know what's going on in an abortion clinic, that's it right there. Right? And I'm not saying this to wag fingers or shame or scold anybody. I'm saying this to turn the lights on so we can really see what battle we are fighting here. And it is, it is no coincidence that after St. Paul tells us the meaning of human sexuality in Ephesians 5 and calls it a great mystery, 
He tells us in the next chapter, Ephesians 6, get ready for a war. You want to live what I was just telling you about? Get ready for a war. And if you want to win this war, you got to put on the armor of God. And do you know what the very first piece of armor is, Father Gill, that St. Paul says we need to put on? Is it the helmet of salvation? Nope. No, breast, breastplate of righteousness, right? Nope. Nope. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Here's the first thing we have to do. Gird your loins with the truth. Ah, interesting. I hope all our listeners know what your loins are. <laughs> and I hope you have the courage to ask, are my loins girded in the truth of the Trinity or are they girded in the lies of Lucifer? Because mm. this is where the battle is. The battle is right here in the mystery of our creation as male and female and the call of the two to be fertile and multiply. This is what the enemy's after. Gird your loins in the truth of the Trinity and you will win the war against the enemy who hates us. That's a beautiful thought. Thank you for, for ending on that thought. So we have to wrap up, unfortunately, because time is uh, of the essence. But Christopher, thank you so much for your time. And please come and join us on the 27th of uh, March in Greenwich. Uh, and it's going to be a profound encounter. It's, you, you said there's more than just speaking, right? Oh, yes. This is not just a, a, a lecture. This is, this is not a theology presentation as in, as in a lecture. This is more like a night at the theater. There's live music, there's, there's uh, big screens with videos and arts, and we have some special lighting to make it all a beautiful kind of campfire experience of reflection through beauty as to what it means to be human. That's excellent. So Monday, March 27th at 7 p.m. at St. Michael the Archangel Church in Greenwich. Come see Christopher and uh, his, his team in person. should be a beautiful, beautiful night. But thank you so much uh, for joining us on this, this episode of Restless. What a great gift it is to interview you and to talk about something that's so passionate on my heart and obviously so passionate on your heart. You gave me some new insights I'd never thought about. So thank you for that. I'm so glad. You're so welcome, Father. And you can find us on Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 AM, and also wherever you tune in to get your podcasts. Tune in next time to Restless as we dive deeper into our Catholic faith from the lens of a young adult. God bless.